This podcast was made in association with TES Institute. Their straight teaching course is designed for TAs and allows them to gain QTS while remaining in their current school. So far, they've helped many TAs become qualified teachers. You can find out a bit more about the course if you go online to TES Institute. Special education has been in the spotlight in recent years, with schools, parents and local authorities pointing to a huge shortfall in funding. The government has committed £700 million to the sector over the next year, but is this enough? With the number of SEND children increasing and their needs becoming more complex, do we have enough qualified teachers in the UK to support these students? I'm joined by Simon Knight. Simon is joint head teacher at Frank Wise School in Banbury, a school for children aged between 2 and 19 with severe or profound and multiple learning disabilities. He is also a national SEND leader for Whole School SEND, a consortium of organisations committed to enhancing the quality of education for learners with special educational needs and disabilities. He has sat on DFE panels developing both the professional standards for teaching assistants and the standard for teachers' professional development. We spoke about the challenges facing the sector, from the new code of practice to finding the right staff. Simon, welcome to TES. Um, welcome to the TES recording studio for what is um, actually my first ever TES podcast. So it's nice to be with a fellow Simon for this landmark moment. Um, have you ever have you ever been on a TES podcast before? No, and I've never been in the TES basement before either. Uh, this, is, yes. this is quite an experience. Yeah, just to, just to set the scene, we're down in the basement. Um, there's no windows. You know, for the interest of uh, recording quality, we've had to turn the aircon off, so it'll essentially just get hotter and hotter <laughs> until one of us passes out, um, which does effectively help us run to time. Yes. Um, so we'll probably half an hour is probably the maximum. We Sound can, locked, we can... air locked. You <laughs> exactly. Know, we're on a countdown now. Exactly. Um, great. So um, pleasantries aside, we're we're here to tackle quite a, a kind of heavy topic. Um, we're looking into the the challenges facing uh, facing special education at the moment, and um, and how you're how you're coping with them, how some of the solutions you've found. Um, so I'll start with probably the the thing that underpins many of the other problems you probably um, incur day to day, um, and that's and that's funding. Um, We're five years on from the rollout of the Children and Families Act. Uh, and subsequent code of practice um, EHCPs that came with it. Um, what's your assessment of, of where we're at now? Um, I think it's probably fair to say that the ambition and aspiration that was built into the changes that took place have probably not been realised yet. Um, there's been a lot of talk about needing the, the reforms to embed. Um, and I'm not really sure um, how long embedding takes, but it would strike me that five years is probably a little too long because that's five years during which children have been denied access to an education that's of a suitable quality to meet their, their educational requirements. Um, and it's probably going to be an interesting thing to reflect on in the future that making uh, changes of such significant size at a time of reducing um, public sector expenditure and reducing public sector capacity to deliver um, excellence um, is, is probably going to be an interesting thing to unpick. Um, fun, funding's in a really tricky position at the moment. Things, things are not easy, and I think that's starting to be recognised um, by government. More importantly, um, you know, it's being pushed by the public now, which seems to give it more weight um, than if it's just being pushed by us, you know, working 
uh, in classrooms and in schools. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, it's it's something that's never far from the TES pages, um, and it's something yeah that, that parents are really really behind. Where is there somewhere where you feel that funding shortfalls have become significantly apparent um, in your in your day to day? I think the thing that, that often surprises people is the, the lack of equity in the funding system, particularly um, in special schools. Um, the funding is distributed through something called the High Needs Block, which, um, which funds SCND, both in mainstream and, and special. Um, and you'd think that across the country there would be a reasonably uh, level playing field, but that's absolutely not the case. Um, recent reports, I think it was the National Audit Office um, report, um, indicated that um, the average level of funding for a school like mine, which works with children with severe or profound multiple learning disabilities, is about £24,000 per year, made up of uh, £10,000 you know, direct funding for the places and then £14,000 of top-up. My school actually received £17,500, um, so significantly below that. And for the 120 children that we work with, it's, it's over three-quarters of a million pounds a year, less than the national average for a school of our type and size. And yet we still have to work you know, to, to deliver an excellent education, and we're still held accountable in exactly the same way. Um, but what's become increasingly apparent is the impact of this postcode lottery on the opportunities and the resources and the staffing levels that we could afford to have in our school. Um, so are things slightly more straightforward for you as a special school as compared to, say, a state school with a, with a, a large number of um, high-needs pupils? Uh, is it a little bit more easier to manage or I think I think from a financial point of view we probably have greater clarity about what funding we've got um, at least we know what we're going to be given and how we you know how we can spend that because we we have a fairly predictable um, funding line I think for mainstream schools it's it's much trickier um, the notional send budget um, I think <laughs> the important stress there needs to be on the word notional um, <laughs> it's not always very easy to see how the money is followed the children that are actually in the school and there's sometimes a little bit of a lag so schools be working with children but not necessarily receiving the funding at that point um, I was hearing examples the other day from, from colleagues about how long it takes to receive top-up funding to support children whose needs um, are more complex than that that can be met by the notional SEM budget um, and, and mainstream schools in particular it seems are, are really struggling yeah. and in terms of solutions ways forward um, your your hands are, are tied I assume um, so what what do you see where what's the way out of this um, well I think I think the funding side of things is reasonably straightforward from a a kind of a policy point of view to, to, to sort out. Um, I don't understand why there is so much variance in the money that special schools are given and so much local implementational variance in the way that local authorities decide top-up levels and stuff. I think there would be much more sense to try to, you know, look at that from a central position and, and try to define what realistic costs should be and then look at how we can then, you know, increase those for very particular requirements for individual children. Um, for me at the moment, it's far too opaque. Um, and, and so that's a central government um, decision to be made. But there are things that we can we can do locally to support one another. 
Um, the expertise that sits within the specialist sector is a, an extraordinarily valuable resource, not necessarily financially, but in terms of the impact it can have on practice in mainstream schools. And there's also an awful lot that we in special schools can learn from our mainstream colleagues about ensuring that we're stretching our most able pupils to achieve the very, very best. But the one area that I astounds me that it doesn't get made better use of um, is, is the parental expertise, the lived experience of families and their understanding of their own children and how that can be used to support schools to you know, improve the practice. I think as a profession we're not very good always at accepting that we don't really know what we're doing a lot of the time. I think in special schools we're used to being wrong a lot so we're quite comfortable being wrong and therefore quite comfortable going to families and saying things aren't quite working out how we expected you know what do you think what could we be doing differently um i think you know that's that's something that as a as a profession we probably need to reflect on a little bit and think about how we can better make use of of, of that knowledge so you you touched on uh, your relationship with the mainstream schools there you how How's that managed and are you able to, you, you talked of learning from each other, um, how does that work? Do you, are you able to do any outreach and things like that? So we used to have quite a comprehensive outreach programme that was funded by the local authority. Um, unfortunately that funding was pulled quite some time ago and we tried to sustain it out of our own budget but our budget is now so tight that we can't you know, really afford to, to, to be funding, um, you know, sending our staff out to other schools when we're really having to focus on how we can best manage our budget to maximise its impact on the kids on our role. Um, however, um, I think that, you know, setting up systematic outreach programmes is probably one of the most cost-effective ways of enhancing the quality of practice in mainstream schools. Um, what we need is a kind of an SCND, NHS approach where expertise is free at the point of demand for mainstream schools so we're not creating a situation where those whose budgets can afford to buy in expertise are able to improve what they do and those who can't don't um, because that then just locks in further inequity you know where we've got we've got too much variability of practice as it is and we have to find wise ways of levelling that out uh, not creating further. And we hear a lot about there being a rise in um, children with special needs and the complexities of these needs becoming more apparent I, and that's probably something that affects mainstream schools more so than yourselves is that fair or? i think it's, it's it's one of those things that's sort of variable depends where you are i think i think it's fair to say that special schools are seeing um kids with certain types of complexity become more apparent than their population one of the things that's often talked about is the um, improvements made in um paediatric care for children that are born very premature and children that maybe historically wouldn't have have made it sadly to reach education uh, are now doing so and we you know enjoy the opportunity to um, provide the very very best education for those children you know in, in the best way that we can I think what what I see more of is the challenges faced by colleagues in mainstream as a result of a lack of capacity in the specialist sector. So we're full. Um, we, I'm trying to think off the top of my head here, uh, about two places available for September next year. Um, they will you know, be snapped up pretty quickly, um, which means that we won't have any further places in the school available, and yet demand is, is increasing um, because of the size of the area we serve is growing. There's more people living there which means that children that historically probably would have benefited from coming to us and have educational requirements that you know would be best served in a specialist sector are now having their educational requirements met in a mainstream um, setting. 
Um, so I think it's more that the mainstream colleagues that are probably seeing greater complexity in the classroom than us. Um, again, that's why it's so important that we can work together in partnership um, and why we can you know, help, help develop the expertise that exists outside of special schools. And do you, do you think the school workforce is able to keep up with these complexities or do you see uh, a lack of um, the appropriate training um, in in the recruitment sector your, what's your experience do you find hmm. there's a lack of really qualified candidates so there's there's, there's probably two key key questions there one is the, the recruitment one uh, which I'll come to in a minute or if I forget and go off on a tangent remind me to come back to the recruitment <laughs> one um, but the 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 teacher education one is an interesting one, is that it's probably one of the big debates in special education is whether we should have um, sort of segregated training routes that focus very much on, on specialising in SEND or whether we should you know, ensure that the knowledge and expertise that we've acquired and, and that is necessary to work with the children we work with is built into all training routes. Now, I'm an inveterate Liberal Democrat, so I was trying to find a middle ground on these things. And uh, and for me, it, it's not an either or. You know, it's, it's ensuring that you know, we create a much more... Um, a much more systematic approach to SEND in all teacher education. So I, I worry greatly about the variability of access for trainee teachers. To give you a quick example, I was working with some NQTs it's about 18 months or so ago now. Um, one of them had done half a day on SEND in the nine-month PGCE. Another had done a day a week for three years as part of a four-year BAQTS with an enhanced SEND specialism. Now, these teachers were all being held accountable in exactly the same way for the children in their classroom, but they'd all been prepared in very, very different ways. And that strikes me as being incredibly unfair on them and incredibly unfair on the children they teach. So, so at one level, I think that we need to try and quantify, codify um, the, the amount of SEND input um, across all programmes. But then we also do need to have enhanced specialisms, just as you would specialise in maths or science or English at secondary, um, there do need to be routes where you can specialise in SEND and develop your understanding of the pedagogies necessary to be really effective with kids that present with complexity in the classroom. And then beyond that, I think there also need to be routes for those people that want to work with children who have got particularly complex needs or uh, have particular sensory impairments um, so that we can continue to ensure there is sufficient recruitment opportunities for schools that work with those children. Mm. And at the moment, recruitment is tough. OK. And um, your school, I know, and, and I know you yourself have actually graduated from the role of uh, support staff up to being a qualified teacher is that something you see as a as a uh, a good avenue for your sector particularly yeah um the recruitment thing is tricky um we don't find it particularly hard to recruit support staff um we we're, we're quite we're quite good at that i think that's in part because we've got a good reputation locally people see us as a you know a positive employer and it's a, a nice place to work um a very successful place to work um, but we do struggle with teachers, um, and and partly because um, we've got exceptional retention. We don't have a lot of vacancies. Recently, our vacancies have tended to be around maternity leave vacancies, so they're often quite difficult to recruit to anyway because they're short-term, fixed-term contracts. Um, so, so for us, we, we kind of rely on recruiting on the basis of values, really. Um, we're not overly concerned if people come to us without the right skills, because we know that we have the necessary expertise within our organisation to enable them to develop those skills. But shifting values is really tricky. 
You know, I can teach someone to be a really good teacher, but can I teach them to believe in the children that they work with? So that's what we go for first, is that belief, that 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 sense of valuing every child as an individual and having really high aspirations for them and, and wanting to advocate on their behalf beyond the, the educational setting in which they work. Uh-huh. So one of the other challenges that we face is the lack of visibility of our sector within the context of the, the recruitment drives that, that government in particular have been promoting. So you see lots of things on TV you know, and on the internet around getting to teaching, um, but very rarely does, does getting to teaching mean getting to teaching in a special school. There are some bits on the website, um, you know, some interesting blogs um, and information about how you can find um, SEND enhanced teacher training routes, but... Yeah, there was a piece put out yesterday online celebrating teachers, thanking teachers, but there wasn't anyone on there that could be identified as working in a special school. Um, and that's really problematic for us because, A, it makes it feel like that we're not being celebrated you know, as much as our mainstream colleagues, but also it means when people see these, these videos, these adverts, they don't see the potential of working in a specialist setting, which maybe means they don't consider working in a specialist setting which means they don't apply for jobs in specialist settings, and, and that for us is is really problematic. The other side of it, of course, is it means our children are less visible. One of the things that we've got to accept as a specialist sector is we are, by our very nature, segregated, and we have to work really, really hard to make sure that um, as a result of that structural segregation, our kids are not further excluded from life and society. Um, and, and that's something we do very much on a local basis through our inclusion work and our work in the local community. But it needs to come from the very top. It needs to come from government and government recognising and valuing the contribution that we make to the education continuum in this country. And you mentioned the recruitment issues there. Um, so is that one of the reasons that the, the TA to teacher route for you is particularly successful? You've got quite a yeah. large number of TAs who've got... Yeah, we have, uh, including myself. I was a teaching assistant, um, as was my joint head colleague, Heidi, um, and our assistant head, Matt, who actually started as a midday carer, then became a TA, then became a teacher and is now assistant head. So, you know, we're all for recruiting and supporting people to progress from within. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, that, that TAs are an untapped source of potential you know, recruits, particularly in the specialist sector. Um, yeah, it's probably not a particularly well-known fact, but if you look at the workforce census data, as some of us do, um, you'll find that the specialist sector, so that special schools, AP, PRU, has got the highest proportion of temporarily filled or unfilled posts of any sector of education. Now, we're a small sector, so it's a fairly small number, but the impact it has on schools is, you know, is, is significant. Um, and yet those of us that you know, have worked with TAs who've become teachers in, in our types of schools see that they stay a very, very long time in the job and they commit a lot of their, of their years in the career to working in special schools. So for me, it's a really, really sensible investment to create bursaries for TAs to become teachers, particularly those that have worked in, in, in settings like ours. Um, and maybe that would go some way to supporting the challenges that not only do we face uh, from a recruitment point of view, but that mainstream schools face in terms of recruiting people with suitable SEND expertise. If you've got TAs who've worked in special schools who are willing to then go and become teachers in mainstream schools, it's another way of releasing that expertise that sits in the specialist sector. Um, so what does your what does your induction programme look like for a new teacher? Do, do you ever take on NQTs? Yeah, we... Um, we love having NQTs in, um, partly because they look at things with a slightly different eye. You know, it's like I've been teaching for the best part of 20 odd years now. And so I'm kind of a little bit stuck in my ways. If, if I come across a, a, a concept I want to, to teach or a particular challenge I want to help a child overcome, 
I've probably done it before and therefore I'm probably going to reflect back on the way that I've done it previously. But NQTs look at things really imaginatively and creatively compared to me. Uh, so we, we love having them in the building because they tend to help drive our practice forward. Um, so, so from an induction point of view, um, we have someone who's a nominated induction tutor who uh, meets with them on a weekly basis. We have a, a series of in-house training programs that we do around communication, managing complex behaviour, um, and, and things like the the care element as well. Is that you know we take just as much pride in being expert at supporting children to eat at lunchtime as we do to enabling them to you know learn to count or to read. Uh, and so it's a really holistic induction program that sees the child as being more than just a pupil in a school, but uh, a person within a community. And you, you mentioned retention there and, and, and how good you've got it. Um, that that must be key for children with complex needs, having that continuity, um, not having to you know fall back on supply. Uh, having a stable kind of relationship with the teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Um, much, much to the uh, disappointment of agencies, we we don't use supply um, for that reason. Actually, is that sometimes bringing an unfamiliar adult into a room um, it creates more complexity than it solves. So what we tend to do is uh, redeploy from within the school when we need to to cover absence, um, including at times myself, although I'd have to say uh, I think I'm probably the cover of last resort these days because it's been a while since I was based in a classroom. So uh, I, that's definitely the case that if I go in there, I'm looking to the support staff to guide me on what to be doing because uh, they'll know the kids' uh, educational requirements far better than I will. Um, but yeah, consistency is absolutely key. And we, we try to um, balance consistency whilst at the same time avoiding uniformity is that we're not an institution we don't want it to feel you know kind of exactly the same wherever you are in the school and our kids are with us for a long time you know we're two to 19 school they could be with 17 years um, we want that sense of them uh, feeling that they're progressing through life that things change um, but it comes back to the values and the culture again is that we have an extraordinarily consistent set of values and they're applied extraordinarily consistently um, however every child in our school is unique um, and whilst it's fair to argue that every child's unique I think our kids uniqueness is magnified and therefore we need to treat them as the individuals that they are um, and that takes a lot of skill and we don't always get it right and uh, the kids are usually very good at letting us know when we do get it wrong uh, in all sorts of, of ways <laughs> So the the figure seven hundred million uh, gets thrown around an awful lot uh, in in special needs. Um, where would you like to see that money spent? What would you know if that was spent correctly in your eyes? What would the next few years look like? Well, I think uh, I think talking of years plural with that figure is, is probably slightly ambitious because I mean that's barely sufficient to get us through the next financial year and I know it's a one year you know settlement um, I think it's interesting these, these numbers are big numbers but they don't necessarily have a big impact and, and they, they play well with the public perhaps because there's a lot of noughts after them um, but to give you an idea that in, in Oxfordshire where I work to get our special schools up to the point where they're funded at an average level would take an additional £5 million per year um, that's just at an average level, let alone investing in all the other things that are required in terms of capital, buildings, you know, um, sorting out all the, the repairs that necessarily haven't been done because the budgets have been too tight. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be really, really challenging. So I don't know what impact that money is going to have. Um, looking back at the way the reforms have been, in, been implemented, a lot of money has been spent and schools have not seen a lot of it. And as such, children haven't seen a lot of it, which makes me question that 
if we don't change the way the finances are deployed, we're probably going to end up spending a lot of money and not seeing a, a very good return for it. And, and that's frustrating on a number of levels, most frustratingly for the children who should be benefiting from greater investment in their education, but also frustrating for us who will see money wasted when we know that we could do so much good with it. Great. So I'm... Thank you very much. I'll um, I'll bring that to a close before we um, before we sweat any further down here in the basement. <laughs> it was um, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, no, thanks, thanks for inviting talking. me. It's been good. Great, thanks. Cheers. Cheers.